Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. I had a Christmas sweater fail. I'm sorry. I had a better one, but there was a problem. I shouldn't have had it. We should have had Christmas Sweater Sunday before the cookie exchange and not after. But anyway, it, and also some people ask me after the first service, is there a reason why we don't let Robert or Trevor preach on Christmas Sweater Sunday? And I'm not going to answer that question, even if you keep asking me about it. So you guys look great. I felt so much better, though, because my friend Mylene has on solid green. I have on solid red. So we know how to celebrate the right way, right? Did you stand up when they told everyone to stand up? No, I didn't either. I stayed seated. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Last Sunday of the year for us. So this is not an easy time of year, though, right? I know that Christmas is a season of joy and of celebration, but there is just a lot going on. I mean, how late did you stay up to finish your Christmas cards? How late did you stay up baking Christmas cookies? You weren't even sure if you had time to come to this service today, right? That's why, like, you were a couple minutes late, and you've already had that talk in the car, like, we're not staying after today for all the chit-chat. We have to go. We have stuff to do, right? This is a tough time of year, not to mention that it's actually tough emotionally. A lot of people, this is going to be, you know, it's first Christmas without people that they love, or it's a time of pain for them. It's not an easy time of year. And then if you step back from that, beyond just Christmas, you know, regular life, can be really difficult. I mean, you have a stressful job. Things aren't always great at home. At school, you have a lot of projects that are very difficult to do. You know, relationship stress. Life isn't easy. Then when you step back from that at what's happening in the world, it's even more scary when you see what's happening. You know, there's always, there's global conflicts and there's problems. And some of you were just furloughed yesterday from your jobs. And there's always the latest thing that trump Obama did to really frustrate you. And what happens to us so often is because of all of the, the negativity that's happening in the world, all of the stress and all of the tension that we feel, very often we internalize those things and the difficult circumstances of the world create negative thoughts in us. And we be can become stuck in negative thinking. And being stuck in negative thinking is not a fun place to be because negative thoughts actually have their own problems and their own detriments. Whether for you, you, you know, different versions of negative thoughts look different for different people. It might be anxiety, it might be stress, it might be apathy, it might be cynicism or negativity or rage. I mean, whatever these negative thoughts are that sort of creep into your mind, you, they can get stuck there. They can really give you a lot of problems in this world. I mean, they can damage relationships, they can harm you emotionally, they can kill your creativity, they can kind of, you know, leave you paralyzed, not sure what to do. And negative thoughts can even harm you physically. 
You've probably heard of the placebo effect, right? When there's like a medical study, and so they'll tell people, hey, listen, the trial is for this drug, which does these amazing things. You might have the drug, or you might have the fake drug, the placebo. And oftentimes, people in a trial will report, oh, yeah, I had the positive benefits, even though they didn't actually get the drug. Well, researchers are telling us that there's now a nocebo effect. <laughs> it's a real thing that people will say, listen, you're in a medical trial. Here are the side effects of the drug that you may or may not actually be on. And they will report that they are experiencing the side effects. And it's not that they're simply making it up. They physically will start to experience the side effects. In fact, the nocebo effect can be dangerous. In 2015, the BBC did an article claiming that you can actually die from the nocebo effect. Negative thoughts can be so harmful for you physically. Being worried sick is a real thing. It actually happens. And so we can become stuck in negative thinking. It's a very dangerous place to be, and it's not the place that God has intended for you to be. So we're going to look at Colossians as we have been all month long. Grab a Bible if you would. If you don't have one, we'll put one in your hands. And as we study Colossians, we're looking at the writing of St. Paul. You've probably heard of Paul. There's lots of churches named after him, and he wrote a lot of books in the New Testament. Paul, as we consider the author, has a very interesting life story. Paul has been two completely different people. First, he grew up kind of traditional Jewish man, adhering to all of the traditions that he was supposed to. He was devout. He followed the Jewish law to the letter. And then for his career, for his vocation, he actually made a, a practice of finding and killing Christians who were following this new Jesus. And then one day as Paul was traveling down the road, God spoke to him. He was blinded by a bright light. He was knocked off of his horse onto his backside. And there God met him. And his life was forever and completely changed. So Paul knows what it's like to go from one place to somewhere completely new and completely different. So if there's anyone who can, through the Holy Spirit's guidance, teach us what it's like to experience true, lasting life change, I think it could be Paul. And so we look at Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses, first reading from the New International Version. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I want to read the first two verses again in another translation called the New Living Translation. Since you have been raised to new life in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. All right, so let's unpack this for a few minutes very specifically. So Paul, the very first verse, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. What is he talking about being raised? Well, throughout Colossians, especially in chapter 2, which is just before this, which Paul is pointing back to, he's been talking about how different our lives are now because of what Christ did, right? So he has this language that he's using where he's saying that we died and that we were raised again. That we died to the old self. This is actually the picture of baptism. That we've died to the old self and instead found newness of life in Christ. Like Colossians 2, 
13. It says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Colossians 2.20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. So he's talking about, you've left the old life behind. Don't let it intrude into who you are now. You've become a completely new person, a completely new creation. You're not the same as who you were. And then he goes on, and this is really what we're focusing on today. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So we have these two phrases, set your hearts and then set your minds on things above. And in our Bible, they obviously look very, very similar, repeated language. But in the original, they're actually different words with different shades of meaning that present a really full picture of what Paul is talking about. First, when he says, set your hearts, the word there is actually a word for, for seeking, almost like a, a quest or a stated desire to go into a new place. It says, seek the things above is literally what it says. He doesn't even mention hearts or minds yet. He just says, seek the things above. So we've talked about how the difficulty of this world, it kind of intrudes on us. It kind of backs up on us and starts to seep into our thinking. And Paul's saying, no, 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 don't receive that. Instead, seek, step out, go after the things above. Make that your desire. Then later he says, set your mind. And here it's a very fun word because the word for mind is basically the word that we use for diaphragm. It's actually the word fram. We ha our diaphragm goes two ways, hence the word. And so it's actually a very guttural word. And in the Bible, fram can talk about your heart or your mind, obviously your gut, your will. It's kind of the essence of who you are. It's the strength of who you are. So he's saying set all that you're about, your, your intelligence, your emotions, your courage, your motivation, your drive. Set all of those things on the things above. And so what we find here is he's redefining the relationship between what happens externally, what we experience in this life, and our thought life. Because so often we view our thoughts as a response. Something happens, and therefore we think or we feel. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way this should go. Instead, you should be seeking, you should pursuing. I would say it this way. Our thoughts are not to be set reactively by what is happening around us. They are to be set proactively to the things above. It's a completely different relationship. It's driving the car the other way up the street to say, no, 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 our thoughts, our emotions are not a reaction. We are not victims to our circumstance. We're not simply responding to what's happened to us. Instead, we're intentionally, willfully, purposefully seeking the things of God, looking for our perspective to be fixated on Him and Him alone. And here's why. I think if you look deep into what Paul is saying here in other parts of the Bible as well. What happens internally is actually more important than what happens externally. I believe the heart and the mind have always been more important to God than our actions and what we do in this world. And hear me out. 
okay? Think about this. First of all, when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, if you go back in Matthew 5, he says things like, You've heard it said not to kill, but I say, this is Jesus talking, but I say if you've even had anger in your heart, that you've committed the sin. Another time he says, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. But I say, Jesus says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have still committed that sin. Jesus is saying, it's not simply about keeping away from an action that makes you a follower. It's about what's actually happening in your heart, in your mind. You may remember in the Old Testament... Israel needed a new king. They had their first king. It wasn't going well. They needed a new king. There was a prophet named Samuel. God sent Samuel out and said, it's time for you to go anoint the new king. You're going to go to this town. And I want you to find a man named Jesse. He has a bunch of sons. Samuel went. He met Jesse's sons. And because of the life stage that all these boys were in, Jesse had several uh, sons who were probably in their 20s. They were strong. They were handsome. And Samuel said, oh, it's going to be easy to pick a king from this family. And what it was say, it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, I'll read it to you. He says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the appearance or height, for I had rejected them. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think we consistently get this backwards. I think we consistently rate our actions as being more important than our thoughts. For example, if after a day of driving on Long Island, I've made it home, and I didn't kill anyone, I didn't even give them the favorite highway salute, <laughs> I didn't even correct them in the way that they drive. If I'm able to abstain from all of those activities, I would consider myself to have driven in the way that Jesus would want me to. But it is not true, because all of the thoughts that I was thinking throughout the day about you personally and individually and the way that you were driving in front of me, it's definitely not the way that Jesus has called us to live. We consistently get this backwards. In fact, we get this backwards with the most important question that there is in this world. Regularly, if you ask people, hey, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? Long Islanders pretty much always say yes. And you say why? And if they, are, if they understand the teaching of Jesus, they'll talk about how Jesus was on the cross and he's taken their sin upon. But if they haven't, then what will they tell you? I'm a good person. Why do they believe that they're a good person? Because of their actions in this world. They believe, I have done more good things than bad things. Or if they're a little bit more honest, they'll say, I have done more good things than most people. So since I've done more good things than most people, heaven is probably some sort of a line. And wherever the standard is, I'm going to be in front of enough people that I won't have to worry because I'm sure there's some sort of quota and they've got to let a certain number of people in and I'll be towards the front. We consistently rate our actions as being most important. Not true. They asked Jesus this very question. The Old Testament is tons and tons of laws. I don't know how much of the Old Testament you've read, it's, it, there's a lot of law, and there. there's a lot of very specific laws, like what do you do if you borrow someone's ox and it falls in a ditch and it dies? What do you do? It's in the Old Testament, okay? I don't have the verse memorized, but it's there. So they came to Jesus and they said, 
Jesus, what do we do with all this law? We've had rule and rule and rule and rule about how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Jesus said, good news, I can summarize it all for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, don't miss this, hang on these two commandments. How on earth does Jesus simplify about 635 laws into two? Because he takes it from external, he takes it from what surrounds and says, don't worry about that. If your heart and your mind are right, your conduct will follow. He says, love God the right way, love people the right way, and then express that in your life. Now, hear what I'm saying. Paul is not simply just saying, listen, as long as you have like a warm and fuzzy heart, you're going to be good. If you keep reading Colossians, Paul lays out lists of things that you're supposed to avoid and another whole list of things that you're supposed to take on. He's very specific about lying and anger and immorality and greed and gossip and idolatry and foul language and all kinds of prejudice. He says you have to avoid those. Instead, you should be taking on kindness. You should bear each other's faults. You should show mercy, have humility, be gentle, forgive, be patient. He's very specific. It does matter how you act in this world, but make sure that everything is moving in the right direction, right? Paul can't even leave it there. He himself comes right back in verse 14, says, above all, he wants to make sure you've got it, above all, he stays with this high and low language, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you were called to live in peace and always be thankful. How does he summarize this section? He talks about love, he talks about peace, he talks about being thankful, showing gratitude. All attitudes of the heart. Now, if you're sitting here today, you might be thinking, you know, Chris, I've heard this before and I, I really like it. I really believe, too, in the power of positive thinking. Because I, I, I've come to know that if you, if you think positive thoughts, better things will happen in your life. By the way, this is how we train musicians and singers and artists all the time. We tell them, if you're not confident... You're not going to sound good. They say, I don't feel confident because I don't sound good. And we kind of go in this circle. And eventually we say, fake it until you make it. <laughs> right? Feel confident, then you'll do better. You think, yeah, it's the power of positive thinking, right? Don't worry. Be happy. Right? Don't you worry about a thing because everything's going to. What do you guys do in your free time that you listen to so much Bob Marley? <laughs> That is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the power of positive thinking. In fact, the power of positive thinking as a concept was really written about in the 1950s by Dr. Norman Peale. And he took it much further. He actually said that if you have positivity in your heart, you will release a magnetic force in your mind, which by a law of attraction tends to bring the best things to you. Okay? This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that if you're simply optimistic... Everything is going to work out in your favor. In fact, sort of unanchored, you know, ridiculous, blind optimism is dangerous too. You'll struggle to connect with people. You'll probably miss your deadlines at work. You'll get taken advantage of by unscrupulous people. You'll have unrealistic expectations. And you'll miss consequences that are headed your way because you have sort of this blind optimism. So will thinking positively change your life. That is not what we're talking about. Having the mind of Christ will change your life. 
learning to take on the mind of Christ. And the scriptures are full of this teaching as we come to understand it. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We demolish arguments in every stronghold that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We do what? Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 4, this is Paul again. He's talking about what are the types of things that we should be thinking about? Well, we should be thinking about things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Having the mind of Christ. Fixing our eyes on what is above, not just thinking positively. I think this is a great time of year for us to be thinking about this. Because we're all going to share an emotional journey over this next week or so. You already know what it is, but I'll remind you. Here's what's going to happen. Today and half of tomorrow, super busy, right? You have so much to do. You still have cookies to make, or you got to get your house ready, or you have to pack, or you don't, you're not even off of work. It's going to be stressful. But then probably tomorrow night and most of Tuesday, I pray that you have a nice time to unplug, be with family or friends, and just enjoy reflecting on the fact that Jesus came and was made man. But then what comes next? Well, right after that, usually we spend a couple of days reflecting on this past year. That's why in iTunes it already has the playlist of this year's top 100 songs. If you remember when you used to listen to the radio, they would do top 100 countdowns all during this week, right? Facebook has already made a video for you of your highlights of this past year, right? Some of, I love it. Keep posting them. They're great. This is what we should do. We look back, and I hope you can look back on this year. I know a lot of people didn't love 2018, but I hope you can look back and see some great things that God did in your life. But then after that, usually comes a time of self-reflection, right? So you know what? I want 2019 to be different. I'm hoping to do better in certain areas. And so people make New Year's resolutions. So what are the most popular resolutions last year? We'll have this list again in about a month. I know this is a little small. Number one on the list, eat healthier. 37% of all respondents want to eat healthier. Number two, get more exercise. Same 37%. And another 37% want to save more or save any money at all. Okay? Rounding out the top four, focusing on self-care, for example, getting more sleep. So this would cover nearly every person in this room is hoping to do one of these four things this year. But as you look at a list like this, and it keeps going, learn a new skill, get a new job, take up a new hobby. What are all of these? Every single one of them is an action. It's external. People are saying, I'm going to do some new things this coming year. But the deck is totally stacked against you. First one, if you want to eat healthier, I have bad news for you. The eating season isn't over yet. It doesn't end on Christmas, okay? It goes all the way through the Super Bowl, at least, okay? Number one day in the, in the world of avocado consumption, all right? And then a lot of you, it goes into... Valentine's Day, right? Have a nice meal. Certainly have way too much chocolate. And so maybe by March you'll be ready to eat healthier. Or if you say, I'm going to get more exercise, I hate to tell you, but here's what's going to happen. January 1st, you're going to go outside, and it's going to be cold. <laughs> and you're going to say, this is a lot colder than I realized. I'm going to exercise again after Easter. 
Or you're going to go and you're going to join the gym and you will never go there again. Right? Or, number three, if you want to save more money, you're going to find out the first time you go to the store that your eat healthier vow and your save money vow conflict with each other <laughs> because healthy food costs more than junk food. So you just give up. And there are all these actions, they're all external. And what if instead, when you have a time of self-evaluation this week, you evaluate the condition of your mind? How are you doing in important areas? Are you lazy? Are you deceitful? Are you suffering with pride? Do you have lust? Are you jealous? Are you looking for revenge? Those are not the mind of Christ. Instead, could you consider maybe taking on some of these attributes that we're learning are from the mind of Christ? Can you be trusting, revering, rejoicing? Can you learn to be holy and humble? Can you forgive others? Because, see, if you will evaluate the condition of your heart and if, think about growing in those areas in 2019, then you can begin to truly see real, honest life change. For example, these same resolutions. Eat healthier, number one. What if instead you said, you know, listen, I'm going to focus my contentment instead of looking for joy in junk food. I'm going to understand more the abiding in Christ and that by abiding in him I feel his pleasure and his, his presence in my life. Say, well, get more exercise. What if you realize, you know, God has created a beautiful creation for his children and I don't enjoy it enough. So God, I, I want to spend time with you outside and what you've created so that I can begin to, to sense your presence in that way. Or instead of saying, I want to save more money, say, God, I want you to help me grow in contentment and generosity. Instead of buying stupid stuff, I'm going to learn how to bless others and give it away. And I'm going to trust you to supply my needs. Because if we make it our goal next year to take on the mind of Christ, if we look at these attributes and say, I'm going to leave those behind, I'm going to take these on, then we can really start to see growth in the areas that God has called us to. But let's be super practical. How do you actually set your mind on things above? How do you actually do it? Have you ever tried to, like, delete a thought from your mind? This is usually how it goes, okay? You're at Christmas Eve. You just finished all that fish, and it's time for dessert. Or you're thinking, oh, I want to eat healthier this year, so don't think about dessert. Don't think about dessert. Don't think about dessert. Don't think about the cookies. Don't think about the candy. Don't think about the peanut brittle. Don't think about the fudge. Don't think about the pie. Just don't think about it. What is the only thing that you're thinking about? You're obsessed with dessert now. It's the only thing that you're even thinking of. So you're trying so hard. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. It's the only thing on your mind. You really can't delete thoughts from your mind. I've never found a strategy for it to actually work. The only way to change the way that you think is actually to move from what it is that you're fixated on and cultivate a greater obsession. Say, I, I'm not going to think about what I was thinking about. I'm going to think about something new. People will give testimony of how they have given up, you know, terrible and destructive habits. They almost always, if you listen, they almost always have a story how they've taken on something new in their life that's very important to them. And then one day they realize, you know, 
I just didn't have time for whatever that was. And they've developed a new, greater obsession. The best time you can be doing this, of course, is when you're spending daily time praying and in God's word. If you don't have that habit, you simply, you really, really need to because that is where God is going to begin to do the work in your heart and in your soul. And in those moments, you learn to develop that greater obsession. One of the books that we love here is called Gospel Fluency. It's by Jeff Vanderstelt. And he's talking about developing a fixation on the person of Christ. And he wrote for himself a personal confession that I found powerful. And we're going to post this on social media for you as well in case you want it. And Jeff talks about how he would get up and in the morning he would remind himself of this. Say, God is perfect. Jesus lived perfectly for me. He is my righteousness. God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. I am loved and forgiven. God is powerful and mighty. Jesus rose from the dead. I am more than a conqueror in him. God is alive and present and with me. He sent his spirit to be with me and in me. I am not alone or without the power to overcome. God is for me and not against me. If you were to reflect on that every single morning when you started your day, maybe come back to it at lunch, maybe come back to it at night, if that really became a part of the DNA of who you are, you would begin to cultivate a greater obsession. Last year around this time, God kind of laid the same thing on my heart, and I was reflecting on my 2018, which is now pretty much over, and I was thinking, God, I don't want to do the same old stupid stuff that I always do. And so I, I took on a couple of new habits that I thought would help with this. And so I just want to tell you about them in case you want to try the same habits or it sparks in you an idea of something similar. One thing I did is I decided to spend more time reading books. I used to read a lot of books. Then I had a couple of baseball players. Now I don't read as many books. So I said, listen, I really would like to get back to reading. So I dedicated myself to reading. And to be accountable, I posted a lot of the books that I read on social media. So if we're connected, you've probably seen some of that. Uh, I didn't post all the books I read because once you decide to set a value, say, God, I want to read more books that help me grow in you, God will lead you to read books that you're not ready to post on Facebook necessarily. But I found it to be a great discipline. And I, I took the book time right out of TV time. And I used to watch TV, 46 minutes at the end of the day. I'm like, you know what? I don't have time for that. Just started reading more. And I feel like it fed my soul. I also, for the first time in my life, took the discipline of scripture memorization seriously. I preached a sermon in November of 2017 about the Bible. And we actually talked about how important it is to memorize the Bible. And at that time in my life, I had probably memorized 15 to 20 verses, all when I was in grade school at the Modesto Christian School. So I'm like, hey, I got to do better. So I decided this year to have one of my, you know how you take your phone out and you just thumb through it? I just went to the Scripture Typer app instead of social media. And I, I feel like I had a good year. For, for me personally, I was probably at 15 or 20 verses, and yesterday I was at 149. So I, this year, memorized 149 verses that I just kind of carry with me. Now, for some of you guys, that seems like a lot. For a lot of you, it doesn't seem like a lot because you've done a lot of memorizing. You also know if you're in a discipleship group, a D group, uh, memorizing scripture is something that we do together. It's very fun. I have a discipleship group. We keep each other accountable. If somebody doesn't know their verse, we give them punishment verses, or we suspend their cookie privileges, or whatever we have to do to get them back on track. And so, but for you, it could be different. It may not be reading. It may not be memorization. But how can you have a greater obsession on the person of Christ to be growing in the areas that he's called you? Because what we need to do, my friends, 
we need to gird our loins, okay? This is a really old idiom that doesn't make sense anymore. It's in the older translations of the Bible. Peter was talking about this exact concept. He said, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you look up this verse now, they skip the gird up your loins part because no one really knows what it means. But for some reason, it caught my attention this week, and I looked into it. Girding your loins is actually a fascinating concept. Now, don't worry. Your children can stay. Okay? <laughs> Here's what it actually means. The men of the ancient Middle East would wear full-length clothes all the way to the ground. Okay? Why do they wear it all the way to the ground? Women, it's the same reason that you wear a maxi dress in the summer. Okay? It is modest, it protects you from the sun, it is comfortable, and the air conditioning is on point, right? <laughs> so you're like, this is great. Well, their climate was summer pretty much all the time, so the men would wear this. However, when it was time for men to go into battle, this was not the right thing to wear, okay? It would obviously be a liability. Not only can someone grab you and tackle you, you can't really run or jump, you will not see anyone wearing a maxi dress in week 16 of the NFL today. It simply doesn't work. So what did the men do? They would take all that fabric, they would gather it all in front of them, all the extra fabric. They pass it all between their knees, and they bring it up behind, and then they would tie it here. And that's how they would go into battle. They couldn't just change clothes. That wasn't really a thing in those days. Your clothes were your clothes. So they would convert their maxi dress, into battle-worthy clothing. Because what did they do? First, they made their legs accessible so they could be agile, they could be quick, they could run, they could jump, they could kick, whatever needed to happen in this battle. There was nothing holding them back. And second of all, quite obviously, they took all that fabric and repurposed it to protect them where they are most vulnerable. That is what we need to do, my friends. Because I would love to tell you that the solution for negative thinking is that the world will be better soon and it won't bombard you with these thoughts anymore. I simply don't think that's the case. We instead have to learn how we can strengthen ourselves so that we do not succumb to being stuck in negative thinking because those thoughts are not the mind of Christ and that is not how we learn and grow how to be the people that he's created us to be. So I'm going to invite Trevor and the band to come back up. They're going to lead us through the rest of this service. But while they do, and while they kind of prepare, I want us to take a minute and just pause here and pray. And both pray for gratitude for what God has done, and also pray that he would lead us into where he has us going. Lord God in heaven, thank you that every time we study your scripture, we're confronted with your truth. Thank you that you've called us out of negative thinking. God, every time we go down that road, we feel its pain. We've seen it spiral. God, we don't want to be there anymore. We don't want to feel anxiety. We don't want to feel tension. We don't want to feel apathy or cynicism. We want to be vibrant and alive in you. So God, teach us how we can obsess about the person of Christ. How we can know you and love you more fully. And God, as you take us there, find us to be humble and open. And we look forward to what you can do in our hearts with great expectation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.